Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Do the so-called men in black actually exist? If so, are they from the government, some corporate cabal, or from somewhere else? What does it take to receive a visit from one or more of them? Hello, and welcome to the 253rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and that was my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. But before we introduce our guests, I don't have to tell you what looms darkly ahead. Okay, who, that, I'm never saying that again. And our weekly paranormal <laughs> contest. Anyway, last week's question was, where does the lake monster known as Illy live? Carrie from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania got the answer. Lake Iliamna in Alaska. All right, this week's question is, what was the name of the Shawnee chief whose 18th century curse often gets the blame for weird happenings in the Ohio Valley of the eastern United States? Get it right, and win an autographed copy of Contact D's A History of Alien-Human Interaction by tonight's guest. And call us locally at 401-766-1240 or nationally at 800-449-1240. If nobody gets it before the end of the show and you still think you have a shot, drop a line to me at ben at behindtheparanormal.com. And we're honored to have as our guest tonight uh, the paranormal renaissance man, Nick Redfern. Nick works full-time as an author, lecturer, and journalist. He writes about a wide variety of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, UFOs, lake monsters like Illy. I don't know if he's written about Illy, but there he is. Alien encounters, the worlds of the supernatural and the paranormal, and government conspiracies and cover-ups. He is a regular contributor to UFO Magazine, Fate Magazine, the Fortean Times, and Paranormal Magazine, and a number of other publications in the U.S. and the U.K. Along with Contactees, the book, Nick's other books include Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. That's last time we he was on the show, he talked about that. Final Events, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, Three Men Seeking Monsters, A Covert Agenda, The FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, Celebrity Secrets, Body Snatchers in the Desert, Monsters of Texas, Science Fiction Secrets, There's Something in the Woods, and Strange Secrets. Nick, you make me sick. It takes me five years to write a book, and you pump these tre- tremendous works out like nothing. Anyway, Nick has appeared on numerous television and radio shows around the world, including MSNBC's Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Coast to Coast AM with George Nury. Nick is the co-host of the weekly paranormal-themed radio show, Exploring All Realms. He also heads the American office of the British-based Center for Forte and Zoology, one of the fir- very few full-time groups in the world dedicated to the investigation of cryptids or unknown creatures. Originally from England, Nick lives in Arlington, Texas, with his lovely wife, Dana. His website is www.nickredfern.com. Nick Redfern, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on the show again. Uh-oh. Oh, no, it, it's fine. Okay, thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. You okay? Are you with us, Nick? Yeah, can you hear me? Hello? Huh. Can you hear me? Well, there's still, we- there's sound going through. I can see it. Hello? Oh, dear. Well, let's, uh, we got, let's um, push a few buttons here. Hello? Hello? In the meantime, we as we try to get Nick's audio here, we're going to uh, hopefully have our show about men in black. Let me Hello? just explain a little bit about what that is. 
since, well, early in the UFO era especially, men Hello? in black, people in black suits and ties, very often with sunglasses and hats, supposedly, will vary. Should we call them back? <clears throat> Hello? Okay, we're going to try to get Nick here. But in the meantime, uh, the, these are um, uh, undesirable people who apparently show up, whether they're from the government, so some organization, nobody really knows. And what they do is they appear and uh, attempt to dissuade people from talking about their paranormal experiences uh, in general, and particularly UFO experiences. Supposedly they have been seen uh, near major paranormal flaps such as the, the so-called Mothman occurrences in the Ohio Valley in the 1960s when they supposedly sort of fanned out all over the Ohio Valley in uh, cars, uh, black cars of course and asked people uh, not to talk about their experiences with this either with the UFOs that accompanied the phenomenon or with the actual so-called Mothman himself which was a, uh, that we've done separate shows on that and it's quite a, quite a bizarre creature and where they were from, they very often claimed to be from the government. And uh, do we have Nick? Um, okay. Hello. Hello, Nick, are you with us? Yes, can you hear me? I think huh. I heard something. Hello? You know, it's really strange. We, okay, we're going to... Is he on the air? Hello? Oh, Nick! Yes, hello. We're uh, we're searching through the um, cyber limbo here for you. Okay, well, we can't hear you on the main speaker, but they can hear him on the air, right? They can, right? Okay, well, we're, we're going to make sure that... Well, yeah, it, it, wouldn't, right. it wouldn't be going through the headphones if it wasn't on the Okay, air. okay, well, we're going, well, we need to hear them, too. All right. I'm still, well, why don't you, you get us a couple of headsets? Okay. All right, Nick, I'm going to start... Uh, well, we're going to let Ben answer, ask the uh, first question here. Okay. okay uh, Sorry about the confusion, folks. <laughs> this is going to be kind of hard to do, but how far back do you... Trace human slash alien contact or human and alien contacts. Um, well, I guess you know in terms of the modern era, we go back to sort of 1947 when the pilot Kenneth Arnold had a famous UFO encounter over Washington State, where he said he saw like a fleet of um, strange-looking craft that became known as flying saucers. And a lot of people sort of equate flying saucers with beginning in the late 40s, but that's actually not the case. Uh, one year before the Flying Saucer Wave in 47, um, there was a huge number of sightings of what name became known as ghost rockets all across Scandinavia, like Norway, Sweden and Denmark. And during the Second World War, there were reports of strange objects that used to pace the aircraft became known as Foo Fighters, which is where the, the band of Foo Fighters got their name from. And at the latter part of the 1800s, all across America, people were seeing what became known as phantom airships, and nobody could at any point of origin for who was flying them or where they were from. And then, of course, you know, you go back thousands of years, and the Romans even were talking about seeing so-called flying shields in the sky. So, in other words, you know, we can push the barriers back pretty much, you know, across the centuries. It's all kind of dependent on, you know, how much or to what extent people actually interpret these objects or phenomena as UFOs somebody else, you know, says it's angels or demons or whatever, you know, it's got, a lot of it sort of interspersed and tied in with folklore, but people have been seeing strange things in the sky for, for thousands of years. Okay, uh, I, I'm going to take over the question here because we only got one uh, headset here. Anyway, uh, I'm going to ask you, Nick, uh, okay, we have reports of uh, alien contact, as you suggest, going way back, uh, perhaps even to cave paintings, this sort of thing. How far back have there been reports of 
the so-called men in black? Or were the guys in togas, black togas? I mean, <laughs> what, what sort of, how far back does that go? Uh, well, we, we don't quite have black togas, but I mean, what is interesting is we go back to sort of the 15, 1600s, when a lot of people um, back then were sort of practicing alchemy, the whole process of trying to turn base metals into precious metals, like gold. Um, you know, the idea was that there were sort of ancient rites and rituals and secrets, if you knew the, the ways and means of ancient man, etc., that you could actually practice alchemy and turn-based metals and said it's a very precious one. And uh, there are actually a number of reports where alchemists said that they were visited, you know, like late at night, and by some, like a man dressed, dressed in black, like a black cloak. Really? Who would offer mysterious warnings about not dabbling in things like alchemy, that it would sort of open doorways to the paranormal and things like that. So, you know, it's, they're not quite like today's men in black, but... You know, when you get kind of a dark suited visitor banging on your door at 10 o'clock at night warning you not to dabble in the paranormal 500 years ago, you know, for all intents and purposes, that does sound like a modern-day man in black, even though the clothing is slightly different. Well, that happened to me in the seminary. As men in black, as it were, were warning me not to get involved with paranormal. So, uh, anyway, uh, are, are, there, uh, are there people who do the same thing but don't dress in black do, but by the same thing I mean you know warn people and turn up from mysterious origins and sort of well that's a good question because for the most part most of the men in black literally are men in black now there have been some reports where people have turned up in military uniforms and sort of intimidated witnesses and then when the witness has put a complaint into the air force base you know or the military base where the person said they came from you know sort of Lieutenant Smith or whatever, there's nobody at the base by that name. You know, they've, they've basically, you know, acted as a, an imposter, you know, um, of, of a military officer. Now, those reports are sort of far fewer. Most of the reports are of sort of typical men in black. And when I say men in black, they're sort of more distinctive than just somebody who happens to wear a black suit. For example, the suits often look sort of cut in the old sort of style of the 40s and 50s. They even today wear the sort of 1940s, 50s era fedora hats that, you know, all the guys used to wear back then. Uh, and even, you know, the government people, like the FBI, used to wear those same types of hats as well. But the men in black wear them today even. And a lot. the, the weird thing is about, in a lot of men in black reports, they, they look kind of strange as well. They're often very sort of skinny, pale, almost like anemic and anorexic looking. And they don't seem overly conversant with our... Um, mannerisms and way of speaking, etc. It's almost that they're sort of, you know, out on a limb when dealing with us, and um, which has led to some speculation. You know, could they actually be some sort of alien entity themselves, or even like a hybrid? You know, which makes them look sort of semi-human, but with a little bit of subtle camouflage, like the trench coats with the pulled-up collars and the hats pulled down and wrap-around sunglasses. You know, and they just maneuver around at, at night time. They can kind of you know, infiltrate us, which sounds kind of an ominous term, but, you know, everything about the men in black is ominous. Well, have there ever been reports of women in black or hermaphrodites in black? You know, I mean, what, have there yeah. ever been other uh, well, genders? Yeah. Uh, I'm not honestly aware of any uh, hermaphrodites in black. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, but there have been women in black. Uh, I always say to people, there's not enough women in black in ufology, but uh, that's beside the point. So. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, there have been a number of 
women in black reports. Okay. Now, again, you know, they are few and far between. But the interesting thing is that they follow the exact, exact same parallels, you know, it's when people are dabbling in ufology and things like this, that they get the same kind of late-night calling. And the interesting thing about the women in black is that they're kind of like the men in black, is that, you know, they're not only do they dress in black, but their hair's black, they've got very sort of pale, coarsely white skin, and they seem more they seem more enigmatic, whereas the, the males seem more menacing. Um, so, you know, we don't get as many reports, but the ones we do get are interesting because they don't sound just random anomalous events. They actually just sound like they're male cancer. Okay. We're going to take a brief break here to uh, work on our technical difficulties. In the meantime, be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and com with our great guest, Nick Redfern. Stay with us. Hi, Rick Pickard here. The great sounds of rock and roll is back. Every Sunday from 1 to 4, Memory Lane will be playing songs from the 50s and early 60s. Be part of the great memories and sounds. See you there. Owen Radio. All right, I wanted to uh, remind you, too, of our uh, marvelous sponsor, Amazon Kindle. We are very happy to uh, report that that is a tremendous way to read your e-books. If you don't like to take these $4-a-gallon trips to the bookstore, you can get the uh, uh, e-books right over the, the air, so to speak, right onto the Kindle device, and uh, it's an e-reader, and you can include four of my own books on that, uh, including my... Uh, History of Rhode Island under my historian's hat, uh, Rhode Island a Genial History, which I wrote with Glenn Laxton of Channel 12, formerly of Channel 12, and also three books, of course, on the paranormal, my last, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, and The Footsteps in the Attic and Faces at the Window, Amazon, Kindle, go to Amazon.com or your... Um, <coughs> Uh, Amazon.com. I guess that's where you go and get your Kindle. And uh, I think we've got our situation resolved here. And we're very happy to welcome back Nick Redfern for the next uh, part of our show. And Ben is going to take a few more questions here. And now that he's back on Why are you giving me this if I have one myself? Because I'm disheveled and nervous. Okay, very good. Okay, so who typically gets visits from Men in Black? Um, Well, primarily, it's sort of twofold. If we look at the, the reports we've got back going back to the early 50s, it's either UFO witnesses who've had sort of fairly significant UFO reports, but not always, but for the most part, there's something, you know, more than just a light in the sky, you know, abduction stories, contact encounters, that sort of thing. Or it's researchers that are heavily focusing on the Men in Black mystery and who may have interviewed witnesses and then the phenomenon kind of gets scripted to them. In other words, you know, if you've seen, for the most part, just a light in the sky or you're just investigating, I don't know, you know the Roswell story or you know, one particular type of UFO sighting or crop circles, we don't seem to see too much in terms of interference in those areas. It's almost like when you go on the trail of the men in black and the witnesses who have sort of been terrorized by them, then they start impacting on your life as well. So uh, it's almost like you, you, know, you go looking for something and you, you, you get what you go looking for. Hmm. All right, so what's their typical uh, modus operandi? Well, for the most part, 
Um, the the men in black literally turn up out the blue, or I should say out the black. <laughs> um, most of the encounters that people have reported with men in black occur at night. And what generally happens is that, you know, somebody may have had a UFO encounter, fairly significant one, you know, sort of week or two weeks early or even a couple of days. In some cases, you know, they've only told close friends, you know, they've not told any UFO groups, you know, just family and friends, haven't told the media or anybody like that or the police. And yet, somehow, the men in black seem to know. And what usually happens is, you know, there'll be like a knock on the door at 10.30 at night. And, of course, you know, most people, you don't get a knock on the door like your average Tuesday night, you know. Uh, and if you do, people probably think, oh, my God, it's the police, bad news, you know, something's happened to somebody. Um, and so they rush to open the door, and then they find very often a trio of men in black. For some weird reason, they often travel in free. Um, and what basically happens is, you know, they just stand there enigmatically saying, you know, Mr. Smith, we'd like to talk to you about your strange experience of two weeks ago, or we understand you have something you want to tell us. And what's weird is that they stand there and won't come in until they're invited, which has sort of led some people to draw parallels between a lot of the old vampire legends of how the vampire you know, can't enter your home until you're invited in. Mm-hmm. And what's very strange is that in many of the cases, it's like common sense goes totally out of the window. You know, it's kind of like if somebody turned up on your doorstep, three guys dressed in black suits and fedoras and pale as a ghost, and said, we'd like to come in and talk about your UFO encounter, you'd probably either shut the door or, you know, just... Well, you would. You'd shut the door and lock the door. I think most people would. Or at least ask for some ID. Yeah, or ask for some ID. But that's what happens. Like, logic goes out the window, and it's almost as if, as strange as it sounds, the MIB have the ability to sort of hold sway over the logical part of the person's brain and they just invite them in and they invite them to sit down and you know they sit there and they they put up with all this intimidation and veiled threats that you know we'd rather you didn't talk about um your ufo encounter because you know brakes sometimes fail on cars you know that's literally the sort of veiled comments they come out with sort of a semi-threat that you can interpret in various ways um and, you know, they'll question the witness, and the witness just spills the beef. And then the men in black, you know, they don't even thank them. They just kind of look enigmatically at them as if they're just taking notes in their mind. Then just suddenly stand up at some point, even perhaps in the middle of when the person speaks, and just stand up and say thank you, and they just leave as weirdly as they arrive. And then the person, it's like common sense kicks back in. It's like, why on earth did I let that, those people in? Why did I let them just sit down? I didn't ask for any identification. I just told them everything that happened, and and I just let them go. And then the person, when common sense really comes back to them, they race to the door, they open the door, there's no sign of a car in the street, they don't see the guys walking down the road or anything like that. It's almost as like they've, if they've sort of manifested outside the front door and then vanished the moment they left the front door. And, and those aspects are also typical, the weird circumstances of the interview and the sort of overwhelming elusiveness of the men in black when they just seem to keep vanishing like a blink of an eye. Hmm. Go ahead, Ben. Oh, okay. So are you aware of people having repeated visits from the men in black? Actually, that's an interesting question. For the most part, we don't. Um, for the most part, it's a one-off. And, but it's often so traumatic for the witness that very often it leads them to leave the UFO research community. You know, I mean, if they're a witness who's 
thinking about speaking to people. You know, they stay away from it. Now, there have been a couple of cases of researchers, one of the most famous being a man named Albert Bender, who was one of the early UFO researchers in 1950s America, uh, sort of 1950-53. And he delved very deeply into the Man in Black mystery because he got a visit from them, he said. Um, but what was interesting is that in the build-up to Bender's experience with these three guys, which looked like the classic weird Man in Black, he said in for the weeks leading up to it, he would go out at night into town. He lived in a town called Bridgeport, Connecticut. And he said he would see these sort of shadowy, almost like wraith-like black-dressed figures with glowing eyes that seemed to be watching him and pursuing him and taunting him almost. You know, So they, they didn't send anything like government agents. They were more like paranormal entities. And he said they manifested in his house even on several occasions to the point where he eventually just quit research. He literally just quit it didn't come back and closed his group down and you know, just turned his back on the entire UFO subject. And um, But if you read Bender's story of these sort of multiple encounters, not a single one sounds like the FBI or the CIA. I mean, it sounds... It actually sounds like, almost like demonic is how some people have described Bender's experiences. It's interesting that you mentioned Bridgeport, Connecticut. That's where uh, I had my second worst poltergeist case of my 40-year career in 1974. Oh, well, well, that's interesting because Bender himself was obsessed with the occult. Um, And he kind of, his UFO research went alongside in tandem with his paranormal research. He was heavily into the occult, Ouija boards, things like that. And some people speculate on the idea that, you know, the UFO phenomenon as paranormal rather than an alien origin. Some people suspect, you know, when people like Ben, you go dabbling in the occult, it perhaps opens a doorway to a realm that some people think is literally extraterrestrial, but that may be far more negative and supernatural. And that's what a lot of people do do think about Ben's experience. He had nothing to do with the government, but he opened some sort of portal to a, a far more negative paranormal realm. Well, that's funny because we are among the few. Most people who investigate these things investigate just UFOs or just ghosts or just, you know this. You know what I'm saying? Um, they aren't pan paranormal, so to speak. Uh, yeah. We we've, we do that. We are pan paranormal, and, and the parallels we run into are are mind wrenching, really. And uh, you've begun to point that out. Well, perhaps we can get into that more as we go. Uh, now, I've always been struck by. John Keel's descriptions of the men in black who reportedly turned up in West Virginia after and during the Mothman flap of the 60s that we mentioned at the beginning of the show. There were reports, as you mentioned, of, of uh, people in Air Force uniforms who were wearing their insignia wrong or more typical men in black who seemed unfamiliar with English or with simple customs such as shaking hands. Now, granted that Keel admitted exaggerating some of that, but have you run into similar reports of these men in black characteristics? Well, yeah, I mean, some people have drawn par- uh, parallels, and I think they're very valid parallels between the men in black and some of the characteristics of the so-called shadow people. Mm. You know, where people have had sort of bedroom encounters, you know, where they've woken up in the middle of the night, unable to move, and feeling a threatening, threatening presence in the room, which is essentially, um, you know, um, the medical term or the medical uh, sort of uh, diagnosis is sleep paralysis, the idea that you're in sort of a semi sleep semi-awake state and it provokes all sorts of imagery in the mind and the body's unable to move properly and then when you sort of force yourself you wake up and this image is gone and you know some psychiatrists psychologists etc 
We'll say it's just it's just like an aberration and a misfiring of the brain between the waking and sleeping state. But I think there's actually far more to it than that. I think I think potentially the sleep state or the dream state can open uh, open us up to sort of other portals or realms that can interact with us in some respects. And if you look at a lot of the, sh- the uh, shadow people reports, they're they're described the way they describe them is kind of like a shadowy black figure, sometimes one-dimensional, but sometimes they even wear the hat, um, because there's actually one category of shadow people that, that is known as the hat man, and um, people all around the world have described, you know, wake up in the middle of the night in this shadowy form wearing a hat. Now, this sounds far more like Albert Bender's Men in Black than it does say, you know, the Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones Men in Black of the movie. <laughs> of you know, course, yes. Totally different. So you see characteristics there. Um, you know, we also, as I said, have the the characteristics of vampire stories about the men in black not coming in your house until they get the invite. Um, and there are a lot of stories where not just Alma Benders, but people who were using Ouija boards had men in black encounters and experiences. I think I include in the book something like four or five people who fell into that exact category. Interesting. And again, you know, I think there's there's something to be learned from that that you know a lot of sort of straightforward nuts and bolts UFO researchers don't like delving with the paranormal act they think it affects their credibility I think but you know I don't personally care about credibility I go with the evidence and if the evidence suggests that people who are dabbling in the occult seem more likely to have many black experiences then we need to let people know that that we're obviously otherwise looking in the wrong direction or we've not seen the full picture and to ignore this data because it doesn't fit in with the more comfortable, oh, they're all secret agents angle. You know, yeah. we're doing a disservice to everybody if we don't present the other side of the coin as well. Well, well put. I certainly agree with, with that point of view. Uh, your, your point about sleep paralysis is very interesting because I often wonder if the, if the uh, condition is not invented to explain the phenomenon. Uh, you know, in... in uh, Days of yore, I was a graduate student uh, back when Triceratops was grazing on the town green. I was uh, working in psychiatric hospitals and would often encounter people with psychoses, particularly schizophrenia, who just apparently were, uh, in in every bit of opinion I could muster, were uh, experiencing real worlds that we were not. And this sort of thing. And, uh, of course, you can't mention that because you'll lose your job if you happen to be in that field. But, in any case, one does wonder which end of the horse is uh, guiding the cart, so to speak. (laughs) All right. So, there are also reports from the Mothman period of men in black asking to keep simple items like ashtrays and pens as if they were valuable artifacts. Have you heard other reports of this kind? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of stories like this where, you know, the men in black act in the strangest ways. I mean, you point this out in respect of Mothman. You know, Mothman was seen in Point Pleasant, West Virginia area from the mid-60s to about 67, for the most part, when the town Silver Bridge crashed into the Ohio River, drowning dozens of people whose cars were on the bridge at the time. And, you know, various people have suggested that either Mothman caused the disaster or Mothman was some sort of warning entity that was turns up when disasters are looming and tries to warn people that's the reason for its presence. But, you know, whatever the reason, Mothman is sort of glowing-eyed, bat-winged nightmare, basically, as some people describe it. Others are more like a, you know, a, a saving entity. Um, it was present in the, in the same location where the men in black were seen. And again, when witnesses 
to Mothman, you know, were interviewed by the men in black. Again, they get these sort of late-night calls. The men in black would ask the most weird questions, nothing to do very often with the encounters. They just go off at a tangent. And, you know, they would, they would always want to take a little souvenir with them, like a pen, you know, or a button off the table. Somebody saw the man in black when she was in the kitchen, she was going to make a drink, and he picked a little button off the table and quickly put it in his pocket and smiled to himself. And what's interesting is that you can go back in folklore and find, for example, you know, from fairy lore in England, and fairy folklore, where, you know, they would visit people in the middle of the night. You know, when I say fairies, I'm not talking about the image that we have today of, you know, sort of little female figures with wings. Back then, fairies were, you know, sort of shape-shifting entities that could be as malevolent as they could be benevolent. And they would all, you know, they would help people sometimes, but if you sort of crossed a fairy or a goblin, they would turn the tables on you. And one of their big fascinations was to steal... They were like tricksters. They would steal something from the home of the person, even if they were helping them. And there's a lot of weird stories like that with the men in black just taking the most weird little objects but feeling massively satisfied in the same process as well. Hmm. Well, obviously, the uh, the implication here is that the, these events occur all over the world, uh, mm. not just in the United States or, or Britain. In the, oh, yeah. the, the men in black experiences, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in the book, I think I've got cases from Australia, England, America, Mexico, Puerto Rico, and one or two other countries as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so what's the wildest MIB story you've heard? Um, well, you know, I, I mean, I would have to say it actually sort of ties in um, with what we've already sort of uh, talked about. I mean, one of the stories is one that I got from Brad Steiger. I interviewed a lot of people for the book who were around in the early years of Manning Black research, sort of the 50s and 60s onwards. And Brad told me a lot of stories about the Manning Black, and he told me how, on one occasion, uh, when in the 60s became friends with John Keel, who wrote the Mothman Prophecies book. And Keel, in his book, focused to a big degree on the Manning Black. And, you know, people well, why, why did he focus so much? You know, why was he fascinated? I think a good clue came from the interview that I did with Brad, and Brad said, well, you know, Keel's dead now, but I still don't feel 100% comfortable about talking about this, but he told, but Keel told me, so I'll tell you. And Brad said that one night he was having dinner with Keel, and, you know, Keel was sort of really kind of spooked out and um, concerned, and, and basically, you know, wanted to spill the beans on something that had happened to him, and he used to do with the, the man in black, and he said that, you know, at the height of his research, things like Mothman, UFOs, and Men in Black, and recognising there were these um, crossovers with other areas as well. He said this, there was this sort of weird manifestation in his, li- in, li- excuse me, in his living room where literally three Men in Black came in the house. Now, when I say came in the house, I don't mean knocked on the door and came in. I mean literally sort of manifested through the woodwork of the door, kind of like semi-spectral, and then mm. became fully formed in the room. And, you know, I said to Brad, was he you know, yanking your chain or and Brad said, no, he said, you know, he was absolutely terror-stricken, basically, you know, scared out of his wits by this experience and um, had no way to sort of reconcile it, you know. It was like the, ex- the encounters had sort of followed on from the fact that Keel had been looking into these things and the more he looked, then they kind of, the MIB kind of turned the tables on him and literally sort of appeared in the room and then vanished again. And, uh, and I think that's probably one of the wildest ones because it comes from a very respectable researcher and author um, Brad Steiger who got it from you know the equally respectable John Keel and um, you know it's one of those little known stories that, or 
hardly known at all, I think, that Keel actually had this personal experience, which, for me at least, was certainly one of the wildest, you know, to have a, an author like Keel actually saying, you know, I saw them, but they weren't guys, you know, from the Air Force. They literally just, you know, almost like the Transformer or Star Trek or whatever, you know, they were here, materialized, and then gone again. Have you yourself ever had a Men in Black experience or seen them or anything like that? Um, no, I mean, a lot of people ask me that, and I haven't. But what I have had is a lot of experiences where people, you know, they might contact me with a, with a case and a story. And, you know, they, I might be on the road. You know, I do a lot of traveling and lecturing, and I'll say, I'll check email and say, you know, I'll be back in five days. Can I give you a call? And we'll do an interview. Let's say, sure. Then when I get back home and give them a call, you know, their, their entire... Um, personalities change, you know, they're deeply reluctant to speak about what occurred, don't want to go on the record or even off the record, you know, and I've asked, what's wrong? And they said, well, you know, in that intervening five days, I got this weird call at midnight, you know, I raised the phone in case of bad news, and it was a voice sort of vaguely, you know, saying, don't talk about UFOs, you know, uh, we understand you, we understand you had an unusual experience, please keep it to yourself, and the phone goes dead. Now, over the course of about 15 years, I would say that's happened on probably about 15 or 16 occasions, so not a large amount, but there's been that distinct pattern every time where you know, I've gone to do an interview, and I mean, obviously it doesn't happen in, in the majority of interviews, I've done hundreds of interviews over the years, but there's been enough for me to see that there's some sort of pattern going on. And, and telephone interference is a classic aspect of numerous many black accounts. You know, people have heard weird electrical cracklings on the phone, strange voices, backwards voices, all sorts of things like that. Okay. Uh, Ben's got another question. Okay, so during the Rendlesham Forest incidents in England uh, about 30 years ago, several of the Air Force guys said that they got a clear message that these were time travelers, not aliens. Could the same be true for Men in Black? Yeah, this is one of the more intriguing um, theories of the MIB that I covered quite a bit in the book, I've got a whole chapter on it, um, the idea that, you know, that the, the men in black literally are men, but, you know, they're not men from, from our time frame. Now, of course, much of this to a degree is dependent on, you know, whether or not time travel is actually feasible or whether it's theoretical. You know, it's, it's difficult to sort of prove there are time travellers coming here. It's difficult to prove, you know, that the presence we're living in isn't the remote past to somebody else, you know, as years ahead. But one of the people I interviewed about this theory was a man named Joshua Warren. Josh lives in North Carolina, and he's a paranormal expert, having written a lot of books on ghosts and supernatural phenomena. And Josh sort of asked the question, you know, why do they wear black suits? Why do they always wear the black suits and the fedoras and drive the old cars? You know, the hats and the cars particularly always seem out of time. You know, even today... People report the men in black driving like 1950s Lincolns and old Chevys and things like that. But, but they look brand new. So it's all, everything about the men in black kind of screams out of time. And Josh speculated on the idea that, you know, if you're a time traveler from the future and you want to come back to 2011 and then you go back to 1985, then 1960, then 1940, then back up to 1959, say, then back to 1931, you're going to need a mode of clothing but he's not going to stand out in all of those eras. You know, it's like you can't go back to 1920 and wear combat boots and a Nirvana T-shirt, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but you could conceivably wear the black suit yes, true. and get away with it throughout every time frame in the modern era. And possibly, you know, in, in centuries ago, 
you wouldn't have to change the mode of dress too much from, you know, the old alchemist who was seeing the black cloak, burning black, you know, you people wore cloaks back in the you know, 1700s. So, you know, just kind of speculate that maybe in the future somebody has an awareness of our modes of transport or dress, but perhaps, you know, the future so, or the, our, our present, if you like, is so fragmented in the future that they, you know, they occasionally get the decades wrong or whatever. So, you know, the fashion of the 70s, mm. they wear them and when they turn up in the 60s or the 80s or vice versa or whatever. So, but it's an interesting theory because, you know, it's, uh, it would explain why they're always out of fashion, why the cars aren't quite right for the, this year or that year, you know. All right. Well, I want to stop here for a moment. You know, as you've been on the show before, you know, the hour goes quickly and there's hard, yeah. sometimes just no time. I want to give you a chance to talk about the book Contactees and your other books and your website as well without having to rush. All right. How long do we have? <laughs> oh, no, no. We have um, another 20 minutes, but I just, oh, okay. you know, I, I've right. learned from, you know, from experience that okay. we need to give the guests a chance to talk about that in the middle right, of the cool. show. Well, people can reach me either at nickredfern.com or nickredfernbooks.blogspot.com and I always try and, you know, get back to people uh, within 24 hours if they've got questions or emails, you know, rather than keep them hanging on. And um, the other book you mentioned, Contact Tease, that was um, a book I had out in 2009 and that's a study of people who claim face-to-face contact and interaction with very human-looking aliens that became known as the Space Brothers and, and again that was a phenomenon that largely kicked off in the 50s but you know you can argue that some earlier cases that have sort of um, you know, more mystical aspects to them do sound like many black encounters excuse me like contact encounters as well okay very good okay excellent and uh, Ben will continue with our questions okay so everybody knows about the movie with that was that was called Men in Black, even though it had nothing to do with anything we're talking about tonight. Do you feel like that that's sort of like a disinformation thing rather than a joke? The um, films, yeah. Well, uh, personally, I don't know, but I mean, I, what I do think is that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't accurately portray the whole phenomenon. Sure, you know, hope not. Like, uh, no, no. I mean, you know, in the film, they they're just regular guys who have to work for a secret agency. In reality, you know, most of them, as I said, look very weird. But in saying that, I do think, in fact, I know through some of the files that we've got hold of now and the witness testimony, there's very little doubt that there is sort of another arm of the MIB, which probably are government people. And I think sometimes they might even exploit the weirder mythology as a means to sort of camouflage their activities. You know, it's like if you want to you're in the government and you want to silence someone about UFOs, you don't turn up in your military uniform and flash your ID card. You know, maybe they really do get the guys to dress up in the black suits, and, you know, so they know that the witness is going to be laughed at if they talk about it, or they won't even talk about it. Um, so I think, you know, for the most part, they're kind of stranger, but there is a government side of it as well, and I think the the government, you know, particularly in the 50s, you know, that they, they did dress the way the men in black dress, you know, the hats and the black suits the FBI um, they would go out on investigations etc so I think you know there's with there's two at least two sides of the coin the paranormal angle the government angle it could be the time travel angle you know we could be looking at when people say to me you know who are the men in black it's almost like you have to answer well which category of men in black are you talking about mm. so do you feel like they could be working together with the government or is it a completely separate entity um, I think it's for the most part, I think it's separate. Um, now, one of the things that I would say, what's interesting, is, you know, we think 
A lot of UFO researchers think of the men in black, but they come from the government, and it's part of some super-secret project. Well, two years ago, the Air Force declassified a whole batch, the U.S. Air Force declassified a whole batch of files on um, UFOs, and tucked away in one of them was a, an intelligence document that was circulated throughout the entire Air Force. And it was a memorandum saying, reports have reached us about men disguising themselves as military personnel or dressed in black suits and going around intimidating and silencing alleged UFO witnesses in the US. Can you please keep a lookout because we we want to try and catch one of these people and find out who they are and what they want. So in other words, the irony is, you know, we all think the governments are the men in black and then we find documents there where the governments are saying, who are the men in black? We want to try and get hold of them. You know, so that was sort of eye-opening in the sense that it demonstrates that for the most part they have nothing to do with the government. But it also, I think, demonstrates to me that there seems to not be a direct connection in terms of working together, that maybe maybe that has happened to a small degree, but for the most part, it's almost like the government is as much in the dark as we are. Hmm. Well, that leads to, um, I suppose, the biggest question of all. Regardless of who this is, what this is, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is a big question. You know, it's not, you know, nobody ever rarely gets, you know, killed or anything like that. But there is a lot That's of intimidation to the point where the person leaves the subject because, you know, it's kind of like the MIB will add two and two and make five. You know, it's like the person realizes there's a threat or a veiled threat, but then they get so stressed and worried that, you know, that veiled threat becomes, you know, a threat of death or whatever, and they, they just leave the subject. So part of it seems to be intimidation to get certain people to leave the subject, and yet it doesn't happen happen all the time. You know, there's no real evidence that sort of the more significant researchers into Roswell have ever been threatened by the MIB, and yet Roswell is arguably one of the most famous cases of all. You know, it seems the weirder UFO cases are the ones that attract the MIB when it comes to silencing people. So I think silencing and intimidation are the main roles, but you know, it's what are they silencing us about and what is the intimidation for? I think, to a great extent, it has to be, you know, when people are getting close to the secret behind what lies at the heart of UFOs. And that's what I would say, you know, I, I don't think, because it doesn't necessarily always relate to one significant case, you know, like Roswell, I think it's when people look in some of the more alternative areas. That's where I think we might find the truth of what's really going on. And you often find these people like John Keel and Albert Bender, who was sort of looking into the paranormal ties and tie-ins and things like that. Hmm. It was always those sorts of people who kind of got the more, the, the stranger visits or the stranger reports of, you know, that were tied in with them as well. And so I think, I think we need to look at that issue for the answers to why, why the MIB appears. You know, it's not just every nuts and bolts sighting or light in the sky. It's when people are making these parallels with, you know, Ouija boards um, poltergeist activity that's sort of another aspect of a lot of men in black stories two yeah. or three days later there'll be an outbreak of poltergeist activity in the house and I think these sorts of things they're, they're trying to keep under wraps well you've led right into the next question which is uh, have other forms of paranormal activity accompanied yeah. visitations by these whatever they may be uh, certainly you mentioned Ouija boards on several occasions and, and certainly I'd say probably 60 to 70% of my cases previously and now our cases 
uh, have something to do with people using Ouija boards. And we just took on a case right now locally in which uh, someone said that the previous occupant of this particular apartment had been using Ouija boards, and of course that's a big red flag for us. So, so that's a significant point. Are you aware of any cases in which men in black have harmed the people they're visiting, particularly investigators? Well, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, it's difficult to say because there have been cases you now where people have been visited and then sort of two months later they've dropped out of a heart attack or whatever. Now, you know, if they hadn't been visited, no one would make the connection. But because they have, people have made the connection, but it's kind of like, is there a connection because we can make the connection or are people just making the connection because they know they were visited? You see what I mean? Yes, yes. It's difficult to say, you know, if, if we're sort of making strands when where strands don't exist. But there's no real, there's no real evidence of, you know, anybody actually outright murdered. What I would, will say is that a lot of people who had many black experiences, particularly those who've had sort of the poltergeist activity, they've, a lot of them have reported sort of very bad ill health in the immediate aftermath. Mm-hmm. Um, like physical health, mental health, psychological health problems, you know, sort of rampant paranoia, depression, um, just pulverizing migraines. Um, yeah. Seeing that ourselves. All, all yeah. that sort of thing. Um, rashes over the body. And a lot of people also had sort of really bad run-ins of, of bad luck to the point where it just seems, you know, you just wouldn't expect, you know, the refrigerator blows up, then the oven starts working, then the yeah. electric keeps going out, and, you know, somebody has a car accident, somebody else gets whatever. You know, and, and, it, and it's like something, is, you know, they've opened a door to something, and it's like, well, you, you're now going to get what you asked for. It's just like they just get hit. And we get that a lot in MIB cases. And my argument is if this is just government agents or even just something extraterrestrial and nothing else I don't think we'd have all these weird spin-offs of you know just bad luck poltergeist stuff going on and, you know it seems that there's more going on where the UFO phenomenon may not be what many people think it is it could well be deeply tied in with the paranormal somehow absolutely well uh, much of what you say and much of what others have said on this subject uh, has what we call parasites written all over it parasitical entities uh, that we run into in our work, and as I say, uh, cross-reference to other areas of the paranormal. On the issue of black cars, which these supposedly are driving, has anyone ever followed either the men in black or the black cars or whatever conveyance they may be using? Yeah, they have. And, I mean, what's interesting in some cases, people have even got the license plates of them, and when they've checked, um, the checks have actually been done with the police, and there's no such you know, license plates anywhere in the U.S., and you know, some researchers have pointed out that's very weird because what are the chances, you know, of coming up with a six-figure or six-letter number license plate and it actually not really existed, you know what I mean? There's only a certain number of numbers and letters you can combine. You would think of all the millions of the cars in the U.S., how extraordinary it is that every, on every single occasion the MIB choose license plates that really don't exist. You know, you think of Katie, they can pick one at random and it really would exist, whether in this state or that state or whatever, but it never does. Um, there are even reports of the black cars literally dematerializing, as if they're like a hologram almost, rather than having any substance to them. There's several famous cases that fall into that exact category from the US and from Britain. Um, you know, and again, there's just no way to sort of rationalize that in, you know, in normal terms. Mm-hmm. And, go ahead, Ben. All right. So, is there any connection between uh, the Men in Black and the sightings of black helicopters? Um, 
Well, some people kind of suggest, you know, with the government angle, that's sort of more like a modern-day incarnation, that, you know, that they, maybe the government people, when they would trudge around on putting cars in the 50s and 60s, now it's more sophisticated. It's down to sort of like telephone and email monitoring, you know, and, and surveillance of the people's you know, populated, populated areas with, with these so-called black helicopters. You know, it could be sort of a, a, a spin-off, you know, in terms of the technology. But in saying that, you know, there are also some black helicopter reports where people have said they've just vanished. You know, they don't sound very often like normal helicopters. You know, it's almost like is the old 1950s black car. Has that motif been upgraded to the present day? You know, and we're still seeing that something that's sort of semi-holographic, if you like. Well, true. There's another question that might take us a little deeper into this, uh, odd as that may be a, as a destination, because it's a very strange subject anyway. We had a guest who was describing a Mothman experience he experienced as a boy with his family, and he said that the, the experience, unlike the, those of many other people, was a very positive one. His encounter with Mothman led to uh, a change in his life, so that he all of a sudden was getting high marks in school, he developed musical talent that he never had before, and all sorts of wonderful things happened to him. And today he's an accomplished artist and things of this kind. Have you ever heard of uh, the Men in Black experience being a life-changing experience in general or a positive experience in particular? You know, in, in um, well, certainly life-changing, but always from, from a negative perspective. I see. Um, now, in terms of, you know, because I said it provokes very often like paranoia and obsession and things like that. Um, there are some cases where you know researchers have wanted to learn more about the subject when they when they, when they've looked into the phenomenon, you know, or, or people who've had that experience where they haven't been overly intimidated and they've looked into it more, and you know that they've gone on to write books, etc. So you could argue that's a positive thing, but on the other hand, you know, for the, for the most part, no, that doesn't happen. And when it does, it's more just down to the person deciding to look into it more rather than the MIB encouraging them to do it. So to speak. Hmm. All right, so any connection with cattle mutilations? Um, only, there are, but kind of like in, with, with the Mothman stories, the, the locations, there are some MIB reports from the same locations where there have been cattle mutilations. For example, in the 1970s, mid-70s, there was a huge wave of cattle mutilations in and around the town of Dulce, New Mexico, northern New Mexico. And there were a lot of MIB reports from that same area, very sort of, strange reports of these sort of black suiting characters roaming around the, the roads at night, wandering around and you know, kind of staring in people's windows, things like that. So, you know, we have a connection again, clearly like with the Mothman stuff. What the connection is, you know, I'll be, the, I'll be lying if I said I knew. You know, we can speculate endlessly, but it seems, you know, where there's weird phenomena, not just UFO sightings, you know, the, the MIB turn up as well. Well, it's interesting that every, t- well, for it, not, not to put too fine a point on it, when we welcome guests uh, such as yourself, we often have a lot of strange things uh, that happen to Ben and I, even at, at our home, not inside, but because uh, we're pretty well protected, but we have people coming to the door who claim to be from the utility company, and they aren't, because we check. Uh, there are not so much black vehicles as white vehicles, which is odd like the vans and things sitting outside the house and all this business. Oh, yeah. And maybe we're paranoid, but I think that we're given some of the things that have happened, we have every right to be. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, But again, we have never had uh, a classic Men in Black experience that I'm aware of, except in dealing with 
parasitical entities, I suppose, from the point of view in which we do that, which is rather unusual. Be that as it may, a lot of people have mentioned that the UFO phenomenon has been evolving over the last, particularly the last 20 years, from metallic craft to uh, very often these days simply what are known as orbs or just lights, this sort of thing. Has the men in black phenomenon evolved accordingly? But it doesn't sound as though it has. It still sounds uh, as though they're men in black. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's one of the interesting things. You know, that's why I think the phenomenon isn't what it appears to be. Because you know, you go back to the 50s and 40s, we had reports of flying saucers, say black flying triangles. You know, the appearance of the entities has changed from long-haired space brothers to somewhat less human-like, and then today the sort of little spindly greys. Um, you know, abductions are more prevalent than contact cases were in the past. So it's almost like the phenomena changes to suit the sort of expectations of people in the period, which leads me to believe the real nature of the phenomenon is camouflaging itself from us, that we may never have seen it in its real form. But the MIB, that they seem to be sort of ever-present and just unchanging, you know, as long as the, the styles are pretty much in tune with what they're wearing. You know, they, they don't change. No. Well, very good. Nick, I want to thank you for a great show. Sorry about the technical difficulties coming up. And uh, we're going to have you on again to see what uh, what you're working on. And uh, we encourage people to go to your website, nickredfern.com, and check out his books, Nick Redfern, folks. Uh, and thank you again, Nick. Thank All you. Right, thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay. You are most welcome. A couple of announcements. Our good friend Albert Rosales, the special subjects reporter for this show and keeper of the world's largest database of humanoid sightings, is offering for sale a CD. Uh, with the latest updates and summaries of sightings from ancient times up to 2009. Albert is very thorough and puts a tremendous amount of work into this. Uh, CDs are organized by decade and include original images, comments, links, anecdotes, and more. All cases up to 1900 are on a CD for $50. 1900 to 1910, it's $25. 1910 to 1939, $30. And every decade, 1940 and on, $25 each. For details, drop Albert a note at alberthumanoid.com at gmail.com and Albert I can tell you was uh, much more than a humanoid he's a true gentleman and a, and a really really fine researcher okay check our websites behindtheparanormal.com and newenglandghosts.com you can get my books there you can subscribe to our newsletter and my books by the way despite the fact that we're sponsored by Amazon Kindle are also available on Barnes & Noble uh, Nook e-reader device you didn't hear that from me and you can also apply to become a reporter for the show alright so all of our podcasts are available at our show website www.behindtheparanormal.com and yes they are free so many thanks to our producer Steve Bianchi and we'll be enjoying the 4th of July holiday weekend uh, next weekend so the show will be a rebroadcast here on WON 1240 AM and com. but the following week July 11th We'll welcome a very distinguished guest, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, Canada's former Minister of National Defense and an outspoken advocate of UFO disclosure. All right. In the meantime, tune into our Sunday evening CBS Radio edition in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, and online at www.newskyradio.com. In July 3rd, the show will be a rebroadcast, but on July 10th, my dad and I will take an hour to talk about what are ghosts. And in the meantime, we leave you with a quote from that old darling Albert Einstein. Quote, We can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. 
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.